Good morning again. Today we're going to look at the uh, person of Saul. Saul, as you will find out, just becomes the first king of Israel. Until that point, they had had judges. We look at some of those judges, of course, are uh, Samson and Samuel and Deborah and other people that up until this point had been leaders of Israel. But Saul will become the first official king of Israel. And you're going to see how that's going to happen in just a second. Now, I want to remind you before we jump into the text that Israel had always had a king, right? That king was God. And they come to a place in time, as you're going to see here, where God doesn't become enough for them, and they want another king. And so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this whole process of of King Saul, and we're going to look at King David and King Solomon in the next few weeks, of that the fact that the Israelites had already had a God, they didn't need a new a new king, God was their king, but they chose instead to follow the ways of other people and other nations. And we're going to look at that, but I just please keep that in the back of your mind as we go through here. So Saul, this is the process, this is how it happens, we, how, how Israel transitions from judges to a king. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4, says this, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They, ha- they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. This is maybe one of the saddest sections of Scripture you will ever come across in the Bible. The Israelites, their leaders, their elders have gathered together. They said, Samuel, you're, about, you're getting older. You're not going to be able to lead us much longer. And your, your sons are disasters, which they were. They're not going to be able to lead us either. We want to be like everybody else. And so give us a king. Now the point of the nation of Israel from the very beginning, and we talked about it, right, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the point from the very beginning was that they aren't going to be like everybody else. That they are supposed to be a separate people. A people that shone like the sun. People that were an example to all the other people of the world. And what has happened here is what we've reversed it. Now the Israelites, who are supposed to be God's chosen people, a light and a lamp to the world, want to be like everybody else. Now, if your parents were like my parents, they warned you about this when you were a teenager, right? That just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you do it too. And in the famous words of if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off that same bridge, right? We've all heard as a teenager. The Israelites need to hear that right now. Just because everybody else is doing it, the Israelites, do you need to do it? And there's something to be said about that. The fact that we are supposed to be called and we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be rising above everybody else. And the nation of Israel was supposed to be the same and they have forgotten that and they've neglected that and now they want to be like everybody else when they were never intended and God never had a plan for them to be like everybody else. And that's what they want. And you heard it, you heard it in verse 7 of God's heartbreaking 
says, it's not you they rejected, as he talks to Samuel, but they have rejected me as their king. Like I said a minute ago, you are not going to hear any sadder words from the mouth of God than that. As God looks at his people and realizes that he is not enough for them. And that, of course, isn't true. God has always been and will always be enough. And anytime we take our eyes off of him and we fix it on something else that we think is going to take his place, you and I are setting ourselves up for failure, aren't we? We've all been there and we've all done it. And that could be a person, it could be an object, it could be a thing, it could be a, a trip, whatever it is, whatever it is that we get so excited about that we take our eyes off of him and put it on something else, something physical, something temporary, it will lead to disaster in no time flat. What the Israelites have done is they have looked at every other, every other nation, seen how they're prospering, and goes, I want, we want to be just like them. So God's not our king anymore. We want a physical, actual man to be our king. Now, why anyone would replace an omnipotent, which is all-powerful and all-knowing God with a human being is beyond me as your leader. One who is always just, who is perfect in every way, or a person like you and me. And it doesn't take us long on planet Earth to realize that we're not all that great, right? We're not all that perfect. We don't always do the right thing. Sometimes we're selfish and we're jealous and we're, the list goes on and on and on. But the Israelites have decided in this moment that God's not enough and they want an actual physical person, human being, to be their king. And God's heart breaks, just like he does when we make that same choice. Samuel tries to warn them about what will happen, but they've already made up their mind. Sound like a bunch of teenagers, don't they? You're going to tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them, and they're not going to listen because their mind's made up. No offense to your teenagers that are here, but your brains aren't developed yet. Just, it's that science. It's true. And Samuel tries to convince them of saying, guys, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. And this is what happens in verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. God's heartbreaking a little more. Again, the repeating of we want to be like everybody else is silly. Why would you want to be like it? If your goal in life is to be like everybody else, then that's a real terrible goal. God created you with your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your personality, and he created you uniquely because he needed one of you. He doesn't need another one of somebody else. You don't need to be like that other person. You need to be who you are, who God made you to be. And the nation of Israel, we know God chose for a very special purpose. He has set them above every other nation in the world, and now they want to lower themselves and become like everybody else. All because they want someone to fight their battles for them. You see that in verse 20? We will be like all other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Spoiler alert, no one can fight your battles for you. You have to fight them all by yourself. Now God's promised to be with us during those battles, right? We've got the greatest one who's our partner in that, who will lead us, who will carry us if he has to. But we don't need a king to fight our battles. That's what 1776 was all about, right? Yeah, America. Right? Hopefully you lit some fireworks off and celebrated our country. My brother, have lots, brother and I have lots of jokes about how we don't need a king or queen anymore. 
spilled some tea in a harbor for that, right? We had to undo what the Israelites did. They want a king, and we as Americans said, oh, we, don't, we won't want a king. We don't, we don't want that. And so we fought for our independence. The Israelites are doing the opposite. They're submitting. They're giving in. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll take a king, I guess. That'll be good. He'll rule over us. He'll tax us. He'll make us fight wars. All the great things that a king does. It's, silly, it's absolutely it's crazy to me to think about this. These, these are ancestors of the people who watched God separate a body of water, the Red Sea, so that their ancestors could walk on dry ground to, to escape the Egyptians. These are the ancestors of the people who had bread fall from heaven to feed them in their 40 years of wandering, who saw water come out of a rock as God provided for every one of their needs. And their these people are now saying, well, he's not enough. We need something more. You don't need, and I don't need anything more. God's going to choose his king. And here's the Samuel anointing Saul as king. So Samuel meets up with Saul, takes a flask of olive oil, pours it on Saul's head, Kisses him and says, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now Saul, the Bible describes him as a fine-looking gentleman, handsome. He's a head taller than everybody else. And we think he's roughly 30 years old when he becomes king. We're not 100% sure, but that's about what we think. Uh, the Bible says it's 30, but if you look at the, the way the Hebrew is worded, it's, it's kind of different. So we believe he's about 30 years old, stands out as a, as a warrior, above everybody else. And so he's anointed as, as Israel's first king. And it's not going to take him long before he does king-like things. It's going to make a grave error here in 1 Samuel 13. And it's going to become a pattern of Saul's life, of not listening to God. And that's the problem with kings, is when you give a human being like you and me too much authority and too much power, you know what they're going to do with that power and authority? There's a saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it doesn't take Saul long for it to go to his head. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul was about to go to battle. He's supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come and to offer kind of a blessing for the battle. And he gets impatient. And you're going to see in the story he does it himself. It's right here. It says, He waited seven days, Saul did, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Now, that's not his job. That was Samuel's job, not Saul's job. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, you're hearing a bunch of excuses, right? I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul does his own thing. He gets impatient. Samuel's supposed to come to offer the offering. Saul says, I'll just do it because I'm king. I can do whatever I want, right? That's the problem with a king. 
And so he does a job that's not his, that God didn't give him. Samuel comes, knows instantly what happened, and said, hey man, you just made a real big mistake. And that mistake is so big that God is going to remove from your family the line of kings and going to give it to somebody else. Now as you can imagine, Saul's not going to take real kindly to this, right? Again, that absolute power thing, it always corrupts absolutely. And Saul is going to have to try to, to navigate through what this, what this means. We're going to look at another mistake Saul makes just a few chapters later. Saul and the army spared Agag, so God gives Saul a decree. He says, I want you to wipe out the Amaleks. I want you to, to kill them completely. Leave no trace of them. And I'm talking about down to their animals. Get rid of them all. Now, these people had actually attacked the Israelites during the Exodus had waged war against them when they were at a very vulnerable place. And God doesn't like it when his people are injured or hurt or attacked. And he tells, he tells Saul to just decimate the Amalekites. And this is what Saul does. The Saul and the army spared Agag, that's their king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fatted calves and lambs, everything that was good. And what did God tell them to do? It's all got to go. Every bit of it. And Saul instead spares their king, and then his men keep all the good stuff, right? These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. He gets there and confronts Saul, and Saul tries to defend himself again, and this is what Samuel says to him. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That's our second big mistake. Saul doesn't listen. And you know why you don't listen to somebody? You're having a moment of pride and arrogance. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's the only time, if you think about it, when you and I, when we fall short of what God has asked us to do and be, it's because of what? It's because I've placed myself as the most important thing instead of God and others. And that's what Saul's doing here. It's like, God told me to do this, but I mean, I'm the king, right? So I can kind of do whatever I want. The problem is you can't. God notices. And God says, no. Enough's enough. He gives him the same message he gave him after the first big mistake. Saul, God is rejecting you as king. He's going to find somebody else. And there's a line in here that I think is really neat in verse 22. I think it's something we have to remind ourselves constantly. Samuel tells him this in verse 22. says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Interesting concept for us, right? Because we give God our talents and our resources and whatever it is that we're trying to sacrifice for him giving, what he wants most of all is a heart that's willing to, to obey. 
is someone who listens, who hears his word and goes, okay, I'm going to try to do my best to practice that. That's what God's after. He's, he's worried about that far more than he's worried about what we give, right? He's worried about this, our heart. Do you have a heart that's after him or do you have a heart that's kind of half and half? Do you have a heart that's worried more about yourself? Saul, as we see here, has what kind of heart? He doesn't have a heart for God. He has a heart for himself. He's going to replace Saul with someone. You guys probably know that answer already. Who is far from perfect. We'll talk about him next week. His name is David. He is far from perfect. He makes some huge, huge mistakes. But he has a heart that's after God. And that's what Saul's lacking. Is a heart that's obedient to God. It's the heart that we need to have. After this, Samuel goes away in secret and anoints David as king. He does it in secret because he knows Saul's going to kill him if he finds out he did it. Because that's what you do when you're upset about you making mistakes is you blame somebody else, right? That's the responsible thing to do. So Saul is jealous and he's envious that somebody else is going to be king. And so Samuel has to sneak away to anoint David as king. David, who is a great musician, plays music for Saul to calm him during his little fits. David kills Goliath, which we'll talk about next week. And David becomes a great warrior for Saul. All the while, Saul is trying to kill him. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel 18. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, talking about David, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign. You see what's happening. God is transitioning David into power as he's trying to transition Saul out. The problem with Saul is he's not going to go down without a fight. He's going to go kicking and screaming the entire way. Saul tries to play some games with David. This is one of those games. He thinks if he can marry him off to one of his relatives that maybe he'll be okay. So it says this in 1 Samuel 18. It says, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. Now Saul's family's involved. Now you, you know from the story most likely that Jonathan, Saul's son, is David's best friend. And now one of Saul's daughters is in love with David and is going to end up marrying him. So this is some complicated Thanksgivings. Right? They didn't have Thanksgiving then, but you know what I'm saying. There's some real complicated holidays together because Saul is trying to kill David. David is his son's best friend and now his son-in-law. And there's some fateful words in verse 29 of this section. Right? It says, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now, why is he not like David? What has David done to him? At this point, absolutely nothing. He's done nothing to him. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, David, if you read the whole story, which we're not going to do today because you guys want to go home and eat lunch, David's actually spared Saul life a few times, chances to kill Saul, to end it, and, and David doesn't, right? He doesn't because he's... He's the king, and, and this is God's king, and he's not going to do it. 
And if you compare these two, the one who's far more moral at this point in their life is David, right? Not Saul. So Saul is the enemy of David because of jealousy? Because he's not the king anymore and David will be? Because David is having success and he isn't? And this is a, a dangerous path to go down for any of us. So it's a lesson we have to learn from Saul is when you make someone your enemy and you decide that they're going to be your enemy no matter what, maybe it's you. It might not be them. Maybe your heart is far from God. Now maybe they did something wrong to you. It's called welcome to being a person. People are going to do bad things to you. It sucks, I know. But you know what you have to do. It's hard sometimes, real hard sometimes. But you have to forgive. You don't have to always forget, but you have to forgive. And Saul is mad at David because God chose David. David didn't choose to be king. David didn't run a campaign to be elected, right? God chose David. And the only reason Saul is mad at him is because of that. It's not a very good reason to be mad at somebody. If anything, David should be mad at Saul for trying to kill him multiple times, right? And he's not. He, he won't seek vengeance. He leaves it up to God. And what a lesson for us is when you've been wronged, when something hasn't gone the way you wanted it to, God will seek his revenge. And his revenge is perfect. And it's just. Now, it feels good for you and I to get revenge for a little while, but our revenge is not going to be perfect and it won't be just. It's hard. Someone does something to one of your kids, I'm telling you, right? It's claws out and teeth are bared. It's like, you want to fight? Let's fight, right? I mean, it's... But the better way the higher road is to forgive. Not the easiest road, but it's the better road. If not, we become like Saul. We pick people who are going to be our enemies till the day we die. And God, because he has a sense of humor, will make you neighbors in heaven. And then what? Right? Then what? I mean, I'm just telling you. I'm just warning you. It could happen. It's a, eternity is a long time. Just warning you right now. The story continues. We're going, to go to, we're going to go to chapter 19. Now, I told you that Saul's already attempted to kill David at this point, and he's going to try to continue to try to kill him. And he's kind of done it in private up until this point, and now he's going to make it public. And this is what Saul did in chapter 19. It says, Saul told his son Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is David's best friend. So he tells Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell him, tell you what I find out. No more secrets now. Saul's on the rampage. He's on the fight and he's ready to kill David. Doesn't matter, right? Before this, it was a little small stuff here and there. Now he's making a decree, essentially an edict to say, Hey, you see David, I want his head. I want him dead. This is what happens when you become vengeful and arrogant. You do things like this. Continue in chapter 22. This is Saul's final and third huge mistake and error he makes. Now David's on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. David seeks refuge at the priest of Nob. And there that priest gives him some food 
and he gives him a sword. And Saul catches wind of it. And this is what Saul does to that priest in the, in the village that priest lived in. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. Now when you're killing clergymen, you've gone maybe a little too far, right? They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. He didn't say they harbored him, didn't say they helped him, said they knew about him and they didn't tell me right away, so we're going to just kill him. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. That's because they feared God. And the king, the king then ordered Dog, you, and, you turn and strike down the priests. So Dog, the Edomite, he's not an Israelite, doesn't care about the priests, right? Turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. That means they were priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. This is what happens when you get vengeful is you will go to great lengths to kill people who are kind of, sort of involved in what's going on. Now you and I are going, hey man, I'm not going to do this. But our heart, if our heart holds vengeance in it, we're going to do stupid things just like this. They might not be this dramatic, might not be this pronounced, but we're going to do things like it. You're going to become a person nobody else wants to be around. We call those people toxic. And when you let envy and strife and jealousy and anger fester inside of you, you will become a person like Saul. And no one wants to be around him. His own people are like, no, we're not doing that, Saul. Like, you might be the king, but no, no way, no how. It's not just about how we start. It's not just about the middle. It's also about how we finish, right? And as you're going to see with Saul, he's not going to finish well. I know it probably at this point doesn't really shock you. Saul has pursued David, trying to kill him, has visited Medium to try to bring up Samuel, Samuel's dead spirit, which is an interesting story to read in the Old Testament. Go ahead and read it sometime. Which is, God obviously forbids in the Old Testament. And this is, this is the end for Saul. This is how it ends. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. If you're making a movie, this is a real bad ending. Saul kills him. He commits suicide kills himself. He's lost his three sons. He takes his own life and then his sword bearer, his armor bearer, excuse me, takes his life as well. We talk about ending well and Saul's the exact opposite of that. He ends terribly. This person who God chose to be king because of pride and arrogance and jealousy and the list goes on the story ends with suicide. It's a terrible way to end a story. It's a terrible way to end. Suicide doesn't just take your own life. It just passes that pain on to, the, to those around you. It's a terrible ending to the story, I know, but it's how it happened. And it all started 
with the Israelites saying, God, you're not enough. We want a king. And God says, guys, you don't want a king. I'm telling you. And they say, no, God, you don't know. We know best. We want a king. And this is how the first king ends. Now, if you had to go back in time to the Israelites and this happens, what are you thinking to yourself? Maybe we made a mistake. Now, they're going to have some good kings along the way. They're going to have some terrible ones just like Saul along the ways too. But the whole point of this is it could have all been avoided if God's people put him as their king. And the same is true for us today. Who's your king? Who's the one you look to? Who's the one you seek? There's no person on this earth that will be able to fix your problems. There's no one who will be here always for you. There's very few people on earth who are willing to die for you. Our God fits the bill of all those things. He's always there. He's always willing to listen. He cares deeply for you. And he's willing to die for you. What, what more do you need? The answer is nothing. You need nothing more than him. Today and every day, make God the king of your life and the king of your heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this cautionary tale that we read. It's difficult to go through the details of it, God, because it's gruesome. But we read about Saul and we see a man who had great promise, who had great potential, but who let pride and arrogance and an unwillingness to listen to you get in the way. And God, may those things never be said of us. We come before you humbly today and every day knowing that we don't have all the answers, that we aren't perfect, that we don't have all of our ducks in a row. But we're coming to you, God, with open hands and open hearts, knowing that you You are perfect in every way. That you are good. That you are just. That you are merciful and compassionate and full of love for us. So God, we give you our hearts today and every day, knowing that there's no safer hands to place them in than yours. God, help us today, this week, this month, this year, to be a light to our community, to the people we are around. To be what Israel was supposed to be in the beginning. To be a blessing to those around us. Father, help us as we, as we minister to each other and, and to those that don't yet know you here in Weezer. God, we thank you again for your son Jesus who showed us how much you love us, that you're willing to give up everything for us. We place our, our faith and our hope and our trust in you and you alone. And it's in the powerful healing name of your son Jesus we pray and all God's people said. Amen.